0: I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is an Agents of Impact podcast.
1: What we assume is that when Beijing is dealing with Musk and Tesla, that there's been a shift in their calculus about how valuable it is to have Musk as what Beijing likes to call a friend of China. Uh, possibly the thinking was, oh, okay, well, we'll bring Musk and Tesla in, and then we'll have to worry less about SpaceX going against the People's Liberation Army in any way. That's
0: Isaac Stonefish, founder and CEO of Strategy Risks, which helps investors, regulators and organizations understand the risks of doing business with the Chinese Communist Party. Isaac contributes to The Washington Post and Barron's and is an adjunct professor at NYU's Center for Global Affairs. Earlier, he was Asia editor for Foreign Policy magazine. I caught up with Isaac to talk about China as an ESG risk. Let's jump right into our conversation. Hi,
1: Isaac. Hi, Dave. How are you?
0: Welcome to the podcast. Strategy Risks is a consultancy. You analyze risks and particularly like ESG risks um, for companies or of companies doing business in
1: China. That's correct. It's been uh, it's been a wild ride. You you've
0: got a hot a hot beat, and actually, as you'll you'll understand that because um you you proved my point that there are viable uh, post journalism careers. You spent uh, many years as a reporter and journalist in China. Tell us about you, a little bit how you got in, interested and in when you when you were there, and then we'll get to what you learned.
1: So I grew up in Syracuse and close with my family, but I wanted to get as far away as possible. So when I was in high school, I basically spun a map and I almost went to Bolivia and Senegal, but ended up in, in Xinjiang actually, of all places in, in Northwest China. So spent a summer there in high school, got the bug as they say, and proceeded to spend most of my twenties uh, in and out of China, I lived in Beijing for about six years, working as a literary agent and then as a journalist as well. I went back to DC to continue with journalism and then about a year ago decided that I, I really wanted to focus on on this work that I'm doing now. Give us the setup of
0: China as an ESG risk.
1: So right now, there's dozens of different ways to measure corporate exposure to climate change and no good metrics to measure that with China. And the reason this is valuable is both because from an investment perspective. Uh, China is often the most important or second most important market for the Fortune 500 companies, um, almost without exception, but also because of regulatory changes in DC and Brussels and London and Tokyo as well. There's growing worries that in some ways mirror what's going on with climate change, but growing worries about uh, exposure to China for global corporates and the ways that it's contributing not only to national security issues in the United States and globally, but also to human rights violations in places like Xinjiang.
0: All right. Well, just just help us parse this out. I think folks understand, you know, clearly, as you said, the, the China opportunity, nobody can really avoid it, it seems, in many industries. Um, they may not understand quite how to think about the risks, so maybe just kind of tick them down What what the checklist of risks are.
1: This is definitely a question that is about beta rather than alpha. Uh, China grew nearly, it was more than 18% year on year in the first quarter. And the reason why conversation about decoupling doesn't get much currency in Wall Street is because of the amazing financial opportunities there. The question is, how do you do that in such a way that you don't run afoul of U.S. regulatory measures, but also Chinese regulatory measures, or the, there's an expression in Chinese, you know, above there are the rules and below there are ways of dealing with the rules. And oftentimes the rules are applied in a very uneven fashion. So knowing exactly what's going on uh, and what the risks are, both concrete and amorphous, is very valuable. And I think the, the two best examples of that that we've seen recently are with Tesla and you know, our <laughs> the world's good friend Elon Musk, and then also Jack Ma and Alibaba, uh, both pose very good, I would say, examples of some of the risks with investing in China.
0: Well, let's take them in reverse order. Jack Ma, you know, has gotten a lot of attention, was sailing, you know, as high as anybody could sail and then was brought low. And I'm not sure most folks sort of understand exactly the dynamics there, but it might be a cautionary tale of some sort, I would guess, right?
1: Yeah. So Jack Ma's one of the founders of Alibaba, which is, or at least was until about nine months ago, arguably the world's most dominant internet company, very much at least one of them. And... Jack Ma was the richest man in China, the richest man in Asia, and there's this Chinese concept said half seriously, half jokingly about the curse of Forbes, and whoever makes it to the top of the Forbes rich list in China is, you know, as they used to say, cruising for a bruising. And so uh, that, uh, you know, that sort of urban legend, so to speak, I think has a perfect record. Everyone who's, who's been that high has, has fallen. Um, and so we don't know yet if Jack Ma will go to prison for his supposed crimes. But what happened was one of the spin-offs of Alibaba, a company called Ant Financial, was supposed to have a massive, massive IPO in November. But Jack Ma in some way either offended regulators or you know, didn't show the proper appeasement to Chinese chairman Xi Jinping. The IPO was canceled. Um Banks had to, had to write down huge amounts of losses. Uh, Jack Ma himself, you know, may, as we were saying, end up in prison. And the risk for investors there is to understand that there, there's no sure thing about these investments. And I think people, you know, people know that. People know that. Okay, you know, when you're playing the market, nothing will automatically go up. But this was done in such a spectacular fashion that. People need to understand the real liabilities of going against the political orthodoxy in China, which is what seemed to happen to Jack Ma.
0: Well, you said running afoul of Xi Jinping, and and so is there sort of a exposure to, as you said, the political realities index of some sort score that companies get? I mean, that that who 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 holds the you know the reins of of, of their success or failure? It may not always be apparent, right?
1: It's certainly not, and it's something that we're developing in strategy risks. And the idea is that even among state-owned enterprises, which is Chinese companies that are partially or wholly owned by the state and overseen by the Chinese Communist Party, they have radically different relationships with Beijing. And it's very valuable to know, both from a positive and a negative perspective, just how linked and entangled these companies are with the Chinese Communist Party and with the state. So for example, uh, two of the largest banks in China and the world are Bank of China and ICBC. And they both have radically different relationships with Beijing, even though they're both part of the same system and often lumped in together. But if you're an investor and you're trying to say, either for regulatory or ethical reasons, well, I need to invest in or partner with the Chinese bank, but I want to work with a bank that has a smaller exposure to Xinjiang, there are ways of gathering that information.
0: You mentioned Elon Musk. I know electric vehicles have been uh, going gangbuster. There's been lots of government support in China. Um, it's been one of the largest EV markets, but Elon Musk was a, a star again in
1: China now is maybe a fading star or a, a falling star? So there, there's two parts to the Elon Musk story in China. The one that gets the most attention is his relationship with Tesla, a you know, company he founded and he's the CEO of. But the other really important dynamic with Musk and China is that he's also the founder and CEO of SpaceX, which is one of the largest potential military threats to China and the Chinese Communist Party. And so what we assume is that when Beijing is dealing with Musk and Tesla, that there's been a shift in their calculus about valuable it is to have Musk as you know, what Beijing likes to call a friend of China. Uh, possibly the thinking was, oh, okay, well, we'll bring Musk and Tesla in and then we'll have to worry less about SpaceX. Going against the People's Liberation Army in any way, and that calculus seems Absolutely. to have shifted.
0: Well, wait a minute. You talk about SpaceX as a military threat to China. I mean, I think SpaceX's reputation in this country is, you know, ferrying astronauts possibly to the space station um, or helping with satellites or whatnot. I don't think it's perceived particularly as a it's a military threat unto itself. It, um, and the Chinese see it
1: that way. Well, it's not a military threat without the force of the Pentagon behind it, but. Uh, when you can move things very rapidly from one point to another, and when your two major customers are NASA and the Defense Department, uh, one of the implications of, you know, one of the uses of SpaceX and, and their missile technology, their rockets technology, is moving rockets and missiles from one place to another very, very rapidly. So what SpaceX can potentially do better than anyone else is send payloads from the U.S. into Chinese territory or nearby China uh, faster than other people. And people who have much more sophisticated understanding of, of the science of it all, um, there's also issues and implications with satellite technology and Beijing's great firewall technology that SpaceX plays a role in. But uh, it's not nuances that, that I completely understand. Suffice to say, um, if you run a very important defense contractor, and you also try to be a very important partner to Beijing, at some point, you're going to have to start making decisions and choosing sides.
0: And so here's the, here's an interesting example. So you're saying investors in Tesla, who may be thinking that China represents a growth market, need to understand Elon Musk's relationship vis-a-vis SpaceX with the Chinese Communist Party and the leadership.
1: Exactly. That was, that was very nicely put. I'd say that, you know, when you're valuing these stocks and trying to understand these things, you know, there's 10, 15, 20, maybe more different metrics or inputs that you look at. And I would argue that the most important metric that people are missing is this China politics card. How does the
0: shifting winds in Washington affect the risk that companies face from their China exposure?
1: I think companies who hoped that this was an aberration are sorely disappointed and where the Biden administration is, is very, very different from the Obama administration. I think a lot of the people in the Biden administration, a lot of them are ex-Obama folks, and they've been very, very clear to paint themselves as a lot more critical of Beijing uh, than they were eight years ago, four years ago, uh, more than four years ago when when they were serving under Obama. The two major differences, three major differences between Trump and Biden when it comes to China. Uh, One, we're gonna see more predictability in how the rules are enforced. Two, we're gonna see a lot more collaboration with allies in Japan, in the EU, in Australia, in how these policies are enforced and coordinated. And three, uh, climate change and the potential for John Kerry, the special uh, advisor on climate to act as a spoiler to some of these tougher policies is a dynamic that exists here and didn't exist in the Trump administration.
0: Sorry, Kerry is a spoiler in what regard?
1: So Kerry feels like his legacy is the U.S.-China climate agreement that was signed under the Obama administration when he was Secretary of State. And it's certainly possible that uh, Kerry wants to bring the U.S. and China closer together on climate issues and that will require sacrifices and other parts of the relationship that are detrimental to the United States. And I think there's, this is shifting slightly, but there's a disconnect between climate people and national security people on the best way to fight climate change in China. There's this idea that to encourage Beijing to fight climate change, Uh, partner with Beijing and make compromises elsewhere on the climate side, whereas a lot of the national security people think, well, it's in China's own interest to fight climate change, uh, both economically, militarily, and politically. And it's not in the U.S. interest to give up things that uh, for China to do something that it wants to do anyway. I think also, as it becomes less palatable to work in china we're going to see more critical statements from organizations like greenpeace which are more careful and more positive about how they speak about china publicly because they have exposure and offices in china when chairman xi spoke at uh, biden's climate summit he said that uh, china would strictly go strictly limit the growth of coal. So you hear the first part of that sentence, strictly limit, great. Strictly limiting coal, fantastic. But strictly limit the growth of coal. So what he said was, China's gonna use more coal as a percentage of its energy mixture than it was doing before, which is exactly the wrong direction uh, that people want. And yet, they still get applauded by uh, Western NGOs that are in the environmental space because they feel like, OK, well, we need to encourage China to be in the right direction as opposed to reflect where China is today.
0: I would imagine that one of the parties that it would be keen to understand their China exposure might be um emerging market countries that are looking for investment, particularly in kind of infrastructure investment, ports and railroads and, and roads and whatnot, that are being very heavily backed and subsidized under the Belt and Road Initiative that China has. But often that's the only game in town, or at least it's the best capital in town, or it appears like the best deal in town. Maybe it's not such a good deal. Um, but there is a major you know push on and, and initiative to get deep into many, many, many countries. Um, how should those countries think about it?
1: Exactly. I think that's an excellent point. And then I think what it is, like you're saying, sometimes it is the only game in town. And when you debate the cost of capital, understanding what the strings are, either when they're spoken in the contract or, uh, okay, this is the policy arm of this particular uh, region in China, and here's knowing what we know about their other public or private investments, here's the assumptions we can make about what comes with this, or, oh, okay, this is coming from China's sovereign wealth fund. Here's what we know about this particular institution. So we can make these assumptions that, you know, this deal is more or less appealing for this reason, or, you know, it's more or less uh, a degree of succeeding. I think one of, the, one of the issues is that people don't audit the numbers when they hear, oh, the Belt and Road Initiative is spending you know, $50 billion or $80 billion, most often these numbers come from Beijing. And sometimes Beijing does actually spend the money and sometimes they don't. And this is a problem with the United States as well, you know, when they'll go and they'll say, okay, we're spending X, or a company as well, you know, we're spending X to invest in solar technology. Um, smart investors will drill down and, and figure out if those numbers are actually being spent. And that due diligence very much needs to happen with Chinese investments globally as well, and domestically.
0: So you touched on Xinjiang and, and the human rights issues, I imagine, is one of the things that you think might get sacrificed on the altar of some other agenda. Um, but just tell us how to think about that. I mean, there's obviously the horror and the outrage um, of the images that that people have seen. There's also obviously supply chain risks. I imagine that there's labor that we don't quite understand the origins of in many, many products and services that we're all buying from China.
1: So Xinjiang is something that I feel very strongly about. Uh, I was raised Jewish steadily on a diet of never again. And here we are again with with another genocide uh, against another people. The most compelling corporate argument that you can make, unfortunately, doesn't uh, involve ethics at all. It's an argument of regulatory risk. So regardless of what one thinks is or isn't happening in... The Northwest region of Xinjiang, where there are upwards of a million Muslims in concentration camps, the US government feels that it is inappropriate for companies to be exposed to Xinjiang, and therefore there are real liabilities if they do have that exposure. So the way that I normally frame this when I'm when I'm talking to folks in this in this industry is, you know, again, sidestepping (laughs) sometimes the gross human rights violations that are happening there and saying, this is what the US government thinks. Um, This is what insurance companies who might have to underwrite this loan thinks. This is what the compliance department in your bank might think about this particular investment. And so you should understand that this is a particular relationship. Or, oh, you're working with this factory in Zhejiang, a wealthy region, a wealthy province in Eastern China. And we have evidence that there was a forced Uh, that there's a a labor transfer program whereby Uyghurs were sent from Xinjiang to be basically slaves in this factory here. Um, You might think because the factory is not in Xinjiang, it doesn't have any exposure to Xinjiang. Here's how it does. And here's the regulatory risks. And frankly, to a degree, the PR risks of working with this particular factory. And
0: so can you get down to actual cases and understand what Products have human rights and other liabilities attached to them. What industries are most at risk for the supply chain that is touched by the various issues? And are what you're basically helping companies is tiptoe their way around it, or are you looking for something more, a more, um, uh, a broader declaration in some in some sense about their their China their China policies?
1: So the industries that are the most exposed currently are cotton. Uh, I think roughly a third of cotton comes from Xinjiang. Um, it's difficult to know, to trace cotton, and to know if you're wearing a Uniqlo shirt, what percent of that cotton comes from Xinjiang. They're getting much better about that technology, necessity being the mother of invention. Uh, pharmaceuticals is also surprisingly exposed. I mean. It's a massive, massive industry, but uh, the largest Xinjiang export to the United States over this last quarter uh, was pharmaceutical products. So we're gonna expect to see more attention on that supply chain, tomatoes as well. Is another one. Um, you know, Xinjiang has a lot of very fertile, or not fertile, it's a desert, but a lot of good land for growing tomatoes. And then, uh, solar as well. It's a, it's a key part of the Chinese solar supply chain. And I think we're going to see some trade-offs as both investors and policymakers decide. Well, all right, we, we want to promote solar. Uh, do we not buy from Xinjiang because you know we're you know? frustrated and upset with what's happening in Xinjiang and we have this regulatory risk or do we just buy from them anyway because we don't want to slow down what we're doing in solar in terms of what I what I personally want from companies you know decoupling is a is a slogan it's, it's not a strategy I, I don't want companies to have to sacrifice their bottom line and, and they don't there are a lot of other really good alternatives. And you know, again, we started this out by talking about alpha versus beta. This is a great way to manage risk and a lot of responsible investors and corporates find that you know, having a more sustainable and kind of the old sense of the word a sustainable plan when it comes to China offers much better results for their stakeholders than trying to be too deeply embedded with the Chinese Communist Party. At the same time, then another real positive is that the U.S. government really does, and other countries as well, wants to reward people who are managing and reducing their exposure to China. So there's a lot of really great programs on the domestic side and from other countries. For companies that are looking to resource or or shift supply chains.
0: Now I want to close out, but with, with two que- sort of related questions about transparency. I and mean, the the first is how do you get your information and how do you know all of these I- interconnections? And my second point, you can answer them in in whatever order you like. Is as a journalist, you you know that reporters who dig too deeply, you know, sometimes lose their privileges and their visas, and and whole news organizations get banned and sometimes reinstated, but but often banned again. Um, are you uh, yourself, you know, welcome or not in China as you as you muck around in all of this business?
1: So great questions. The China politically is a very, very opaque place, especially when you start to look at elite politics. What is Xi Jinping's relationship with the other members of the Politburo Standing Committee, the body that rules China? I have absolutely no idea. Very, very important to know. Um, Difficult to do anything but hazard a guess. We just look at open source information that paints compelling and truthful pictures, but we are very careful not to overstate. And so there's a lot of we believe evidence suggests this is what it appears to be based on what's publicly available. Um, you know, we don't we do not do leaked documents, we don't do human intelligence for this. The idea is to get standards out there based on what is open source information and, and what is publicized. And there's a lot of information that's out there that isn't mined in, in the right way and that it's a very, very rich source of information. My favorite on that is Chinese ministry websites and Chinese provincial websites, which talk a lot about meetings between U.S. officials, uh, U.S. board members of corporations, corporate CEOs, and Chinese officials. And this is a really good proxy for U.S.-China corporate relationships. Uh, for the second question, so about two, three years ago now, I went to uh, Jiangxi, which is my last Chinese province. Uh, I, yeah, you know, I, I spent most of my 20s in Beijing. I feel like the city is a part of me, but I've made my peace with not going back. I fully expect not to get a visa. And I think I've done a lot of writing and thinking about censorship and self-censorship, and it's difficult to do the work that I do with keeping one eye on getting a visa. So, I'm done applying. I'm done thinking about going back to China. Uh, Maybe at some point I will. Uh, I do miss the place, but I don't believe the Chinese Communist Party should rule China. And I also don't believe that thinking about speaking, processing information in the way that the Communist Party wants you to, um, I think that does a disservice both to one's own integrity, but also to one's investors and clients when you're thinking about this from a China policy and politics perspective.
0: Well, thank you so much, Isaac Stonefish. Um, we'll be coming back to you as this all plays out. There's plenty more, obviously, uh, to, to happen in, in the China story, which has been an obviously world historical story so far and, 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 is, and is only really getting started. So we're going to be relying on you to help us make sense of it. Thank you so much, Isaac Stonefish, CEO and founder of Strategy Risks.
1: Thank you. Lovely to chat. Thank you, David.
0: That's going to do it for this Agents of Impact podcast. You can read more about Isaac Stonefish and strategy risks at impactalpha.com. Big thanks to Isaac Stonefish and to our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha, investment news for a sustainable age. Till next time.